Good morning. I'm honored and excited and more than a little nervous to share with you today. So let's begin with prayer. Dear Lord, please cover me and everyone here with your peace and love. May my words glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, first, a little about me. I'm a helper here with Father Taylor in the student ministry. Um, I'm a South Alabama girl, born and bred just a few miles down Highway 31 in Flomaton. I grew up worshiping in a tiny Episcopal church where I eventually married my wonderful husband, Mark, um, actually 25 years ago this month. Mark and I have three children, Betty, Hunter, and Oliver, who I will always call children, but they're really young adults, and I'm super proud of them. Our family has two very entertaining Labrador retrievers, Sugar and Abby, and we used to own two restaurants, but more about that later. Today, we heard the parable of the Good Samaritan. You know, I've always thought a parable is just a story that teaches a lesson, but that's not quite right. The word parable comes from a root word meaning to juxtapose. And a parable story teaches by holding two things alongside each other for comparison. So in the spirit of parables, today I'd like to juxtapose the stories of two lawyers who are very different in the time and place in which they lived, but oh so similar in how their relationship with God gets sidetracked by their love of control. Many years ago, I was a tax attorney. So I naturally identify with the lawyer in this passage from Luke. This lawyer was an expert on the 613 laws God gave Israel in the Torah, the Mosaic law. If you'll remember, he's the person talking to Jesus who prompts him to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan by asking, who is my neighbor? The lawyer's trying to clarify the scope of the term neighbor within the love your neighbor as yourself law. The religious leaders of the day thought loving your neighbor within the context of the Mosaic law only meant they should love other Jews. And the lawyer wants Jesus' take on the matter in order to justify himself, to give himself a little pat on the back for understanding and following the law correctly. Jesus responds with a parable showing God's divine goodness doesn't narrow down the definition of neighbor. It expands it to every person, even those you consider the worst of the worst, like the Jews and the Samaritans. Not only that, but the parable explains that to love your neighbor means to show them mercy and help, even when it will be to your own detriment. The Good Samaritan's love is self-sacrificial. Um, this is not what the lawyer was expecting Jesus to say. Sure, he was asking questions about particulars, but the lawyer really thought he had this whole gaining of eternal life thing under control. He was proud of his approach. God gave the rules. I know the rules. I follow the rules. But then Jesus told the parable that changed the rules and changed them into something the lawyer knew he probably wouldn't or couldn't do. Love a Samaritan? Impossible. For the lawyer, yes, but for God, no. 
God didn't want our relationship with him to be one of rule giver and rule follower. God loves us. He wants to use our relationship with him to teach us and work through us in order to help us follow the law. We hear this from King David in our Psalm 25 reading. Good and upright is the Lord. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. But do you notice the psalm points out the only ones who are capable of being led and taught by God are the humble, those who are not insistent on their own way, but who are willing to relinquish control to God. Now, I'm sure if you had asked the Mosaic lawyer prior to his encounter with Jesus, back when he thought he was getting it all right, all by himself, he would have told you he absolutely defers to God in all situations. But that unexpected bump in the road, learning he must love a Samaritan, realizing following God's law means trusting and relinquishing control to God even when God's way doesn't align with his own desires and understanding. Well, that might be a sticking point for the lawyer and all of humanity. Now let's talk about that other control-loving lawyer. While it's different for everyone, looking back on my life, I would say my Christian journey has had roughly four stages. First, I was blessed to have been raised in a loving Christian home and in the church. And I cannot remember a time when I did not know I was a child of God. It took me until my 20s, however, to really have a mature understanding of Jesus Christ's role in Christianity. And that second stage, my relationship with Jesus was pretty academic. I knew that I'm sinful and need a savior. I believed that Jesus is the son of God and he came to earth to save me from my sins when no one else could. And I was so thankful for the security that knowledge gave me. And I worshiped God because of that. What I didn't realize at the time was God doesn't want us to worship him out of obligation or guilt or fear. God wants us to know him and worship him for who he is. Like the Mosaic lawyer from Luke's gospel, what I had at that point was a religious identity based on my performance where the Mosaic lawyer's faith was erroneously centered on his ability to know and follow the law, my Christianity was based on my love for God, not God's love for me. And just like the other lawyer's definition of the term neighbor that was too narrow, my love is imperfect and will eventually fall short. Then somewhere along the way, through no act of my own, the third stage happened. Jesus became very real to me. The wonderfulness of who Jesus Christ is, his merciful goodness and perfection, began to hold as much weight with me as what he could do for me. Love pushed out duty and guilt. My knowledge of Christ became a relationship, and all of a sudden, I just wanted to be near him, wherever he was, all the time whether that was in prayer, worship, scripture, gathering with other believers. I had tasted the joy and freedom in Christ that Pamela talked about a few weeks ago, and I couldn't get enough. Unfortunately, 
I still live in this fallen world, and I still have my sinful nature, which leads me to the current stage in my Christian journey and telling you the story of the Hemby's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. The day took place in the year 2020 when COVID hit the U.S. Not the best time to own a small business, much less two restaurants. Restaurants operate on razor-thin profit margins, so the emergency shutdown protocols immediately derailed our delicate cycle of sales, payroll, rent, and inventory. We were in deep financial trouble in a big hurry. Like so many others, Mark and I had no choice but to forge on, trying to operate the business that was our livelihood in the new COVID reality. It was like a high-stakes version of that old arcade game, Whack-A-Mole. We could not tap down, tamp down one problem before another more serious one would spring up. And they just kept coming and coming. I would like to say that I handled all of it well, that I leaned on my faith and the hope that we always have through Jesus, wisely and calmly keeping things in perspective. But I didn't. I existed in a constant state of mental panic, trying to problem solve all the things. Physically, we were getting done what we needed to get done to keep the restaurants open, but financially, we were sinking fast. And emotionally and spiritually, I was already pretty much bankrupt. I would pray and read scripture and nothing, not even a little bit of peace or solace. I never doubted God was there. I just could not figure out where he was. This state of being continued for several months until September of that year, September 16th, 2020, Hurricane Sally. We all hunkered down and prayed for protection as she hovered over our area all night long. Our family woke the next morning to find that one of the giant oak trees in our small yard had fallen. It had miraculously, thankfully, missed our house and our neighbor's house, but it threaded that needle by falling straight down our driveway, crushing both of our cars. Our sweet neighbors, both known to us and unknown, brought chainsaws and began to cut away the huge treetop enveloping our vehicles. I was dancing around, offering drinks, thanking our helpers, when I noticed Mark was acting funny. He was just standing off to one side with a serious look on his face. I walked over and he quietly said, I think my retina is detaching. We both knew the signs of a detached retina because it had previously happened to Mark's twin brother. We also knew we needed to act quickly. So we found a car, left our children in the yard with the kind strangers holding chainsaws, and drove to Mobile with no functioning traffic lights. We met the eye doctor in a half-lit clinic running off a generator, and he confirmed our fear. Mark had a giant tear in his retina. It had to be stabilized and repaired as soon as possible to save his sight. The problem was the surgery center still had no power, so the doctor put us on the schedule for the next day in hopes power would be restored, and he sent us home, instructing Mark to use his COVID mask as a blindfold 
to prevent any unnecessary eye movement that could worsen the tear. It was dark by the time we got home. Mark did as he was told and slept upright in a chair that night, still blindfolded. I was exhausted and was headed to bed myself, and then I remembered the water damage. (laughs) Water had somehow found its way in during the storm and had completely soaked a large section of sheetrock in our bedroom. It had already been wet 24 hours, and as all you coastal folks know, to prevent mold, that wet sheetrock needed to come out as soon as possible. I don't normally do demolition work, but under the circumstances, I had no idea who else was going to do it, so I grabbed a small ladder and a hammer and got busy. The mindless pounding and ripping was quite therapeutic. It was the first time my brain had really had a chance to think outside of emergency mode in over 24 hours, and I just lost it. I cried and I pounded, and I cried and I ripped, and I cried some more, sopping sheetrock and insulation falling to the floor all around me. Finally, I cried to God. Lord, please help me. I cannot do this anymore. It's too much. So I'm giving it to you because I just can't. Now, I must tell you, I was not enveloped with an overwhelming sense of peace. And I didn't wake up the next day with a clear sense that God was there with me. Things certainly did not miraculously immediately get better. What happened was, over time, the Holy Spirit revealed to me I had stopped trusting God to guide me. It was a lot like when you've been on a trip, faithfully trusting and following the directions of your GPS until you get back to familiar territory, and then you switch it off because you think you can handle it from here. Well, when things got so hard in 2020... I was really relying on all the other blessings God has given me. My husband, my finances, my problem-solving ability, my family and friends, instead of God. In my stress and fear, I had subconsciously switched off the GPS and taken control, and it was not going well. And that's nothing new. In fact, that is humanity's original sin. Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil because in that moment, they did not trust God. They wanted to be wise. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to be more control, have more control over their lives. Just like the Mosaic lawyer from the parable in his pride. Just like me in my panic and fear. When I had that epiphany, then things began to change. I began to recognize God's presence again in simple, everyday occurrences. I could look back to see God's faithfulness through hundreds of gifts of grace during our hard time. And I'm thankful for those. But I'm also weirdly thankful for the hard time itself. Don't get me wrong, it was miserable. And I don't look forward to hard times in the future. But it takes my breath away when I think about the lengths God went to to let me know I can trust his guidance through the Holy Spirit to lead me in all circumstances. 
The power of the Spirit is amazing. It's this infinite source of love and joy and peace and wisdom that we're invited to tap into. And if we accept, the Spirit guides our actions by allowing our hearts to love most fully, to forgive where we think we cannot, and to hope and trust in dark and seemingly impossible situations. As our reading from Colossians tells us, being filled with this spiritual wisdom and understanding does something mere knowledge of God and the law cannot. It strengthens us with God's power for all endurance and patience with joy. What a gift. What a God. Luke does not tell us what happened to the lawyer in his account. We get the impression he might have walked away in disgust or confusion at the thought of helping, much less loving, a Samaritan. But I hope he didn't. I hope he stayed. I hope he hung around and listened and watched as Jesus perfectly lived out the law's open-ended standard of self-sacrificial love in his life and in his death. I hope the lawyer got to meet the resurrected Jesus and touch his hands and feet as Jesus opened his mind to finally understand the scriptures. And then he would have realized the full meaning of the parable. After all, who does the Good Samaritan remind you of? A stranger risking his own life when he didn't have to, to save a helpless man from certain dishonorable death? Jesus is our merciful Savior, the ultimate Good Samaritan. But like the parable, I think there's a twist. One I need to remember when fear and pride tempt me to gather the reins of control in my life. Jesus Christ, divine, beloved, perfect Son of God, seated at the Father's right hand in eternal glory, Jesus also becomes the parable's dying man in the ditch but on a cosmic scale. Jesus didn't just die a gruesome death on a Roman cross for us. As the Son of God, when Christ died, he bore the consequence for every sin we have ever and will ever commit. A punishment so overwhelmingly horrible, Jesus sweats blood in the Garden of Gethsemane at the mere thought of what he was about to do. And he did it willingly out of love for all of humanity. But he tells us he would have done it for just you or just me. Why in the world would I not trust someone who loves me like that? I must keep my heart and life open to him, not trying to retain control, not even a little bit. So this is the stage of my Christian walk now, the realization that it's a process, one of highs where I trust God to guide my life and I experience the freedom of that holy relationship and of lows where I allow the world and all its brokenness to slip between God and me and then try to control things on my own until he graciously reminds me that is not the best way. God is so loving and merciful, he accepted my really desperate plea for him to take back control on that no good, very bad day. But in closing, might I commend to you a beautiful prayer I've recently discovered 
written hundreds of years ago by St. Ignatius in contemplation of what we could possibly give God in return for his grace and love. I think you'll recognize the theme. Let's pray it together now. Take God and receive all my liberty. Receive my memory. Receive my understanding. Receive my entire will. Because all that I have and call my own is what you have given to me. So to you, God, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you desire. Give me only your love and your generous grace. That will be enough for me. I ask these things, trusting in your mercy and love through my Savior, Jesus Christ, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.